Well, how important is it to get things in the right order? How important is the right order of things? And of course, that depends, doesn't it? It depends on what we're talking about. I think I've mentioned before that I'm a little fascinated by the fact that after 45 years of living now, I still don't have some perfected plan for getting ready in the morning. Most days, I pause at some point and wonder what to do next. Sometimes I pick out clothes before I shower, sometimes after. Sometimes I turn on some audio on my phone, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I put my shoes on in the bedroom before I go downstairs. Sometimes I grab my shoes and my socks and put on shoes and socks downstairs. I'm fascinated by the fact that I don't have a rigid, most efficient liturgy, almost, for getting ready. And yet I'm not bothered by that fact. It's really no big deal. I I do get sufficiently ready most days. And yet, were I to tomorrow, let's say, get fully dressed and then get in the shower... Well, we got a little bit of a problem there, don't we? If I were to put on shoes and then socks, I've not done that before, but I can imagine that really doesn't work. Some of you know from the world of baking and recipes that some things can get thrown together in no particular order, and then there are other things where it's absolutely essential that this is in the bowl before this. And I don't know what this and this is. I don't do any baking, but I've heard you can mess that up. Some of you work in the field of science or engineering, and maybe you can think of many examples in your work where there has to be a strict sequence of things or else there's trouble. And when it comes to Christianity, there is this essential order. First, we become a Christian, then we live out the Christian life. First, we're converted to Christ, and then we're progressively changed by Christ. There's faith in Christ, then following. There's belief, then change in behavior. We're accepted by God on account of Christ and him alone. But now accepted by him, we want to live in a way that pleases the one who so graciously accepts us. Having been adopted into God's family freely, by grace, only through faith. Now adopted, we want to follow the house rules in the family. There's a horse and there's a cart. And we best not put the cart before the horse. One comes before the other. One even leads the other or even pulls the other. The gospel is our horse. But there is a cart. And that's why when it comes to the letter called 1 Thessalonians... It's essential that the content of chapters 1 through 3 comes before the content of chapters 4 and 5. So today we come to chapter 4 in our study of the first 
letter to the Thessalonians. Turn there if you have a Bible with you this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1 marks a major shift in the letter. There are essentially two halves to this five-chapter letter, two uneven halves. Chapters 1 through 3 we could call encouragement, encouragement. And there Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that their conversion is genuine. And Paul's care for them is sincere. And so he's rehearsing a lot about the past in those chapters. What he has observed about them, what Timothy has now reported back to Paul about what he has observed about them, what they have observed about Paul and his ministry among them. It's all meant to encourage them about the sincerity of their conversion and the genuineness of Paul's care for them. But then chapters 4 and 5, we could call that exhortation and instruction. Exhortation. If you just look down in your Bibles, you'll see chapter 4, verses 1 to 8 there, Paul is teaching them how to honor God with their bodies. Then chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, he's teaching them how to love each other in the church. And then chapter 4, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, he's instructing them how to think about death and the return of Christ and how to live in light of the return of Christ now. And then at the end, chapter 5, verse 12 and following, Paul writes 17 succinct commandments back to back to close out the letter. So the encouragement about their conversion to Christ, which again happened by grace, it's on account of Jesus, it's God's initiative, his electing love started this whole thing, it leads to their free adoption, all that came before the commandments of how to live out the Christian life. You might remember from last week that Paul said in chapter 3 verse 10 that he longed to see them that he might supply what is lacking in their faith. Their faith was genuine, but it wasn't fully filled out in every way. And so chapters 4 and 5 really point out several ways in which they might have some lack, some hole, some patching up that's needed. And in our passage for today, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, Though they don't completely lack this, they need more of it. How to live in a way that pleases God. Living in a way that pleases God. Let's read it now. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you don't do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You might smirk when you read the word finally at chapter 4, verse 1, knowing that there are still two chapters ahead. And you might think that this is like some preachers who say at some point in the sermon, in closing, and then they ramble on for another 10 minutes. It might look like Paul's doing that, but the, the Greek word behind our English translation, finally here, it could be translated, as for the rest. So here's the turn in the book. As for the rest, and then he has several things, several topics to deal with in those next two chapters. This one related to pleasing God with our lives, particularly our bodies, and particularly as it relates to sex. I have three hooks for us to hang our thoughts on. That we must please God, how we can please God, and why we must please God. That, how, and why. First, the that, that we must please God, is what we see in verses 1 and 2. And notice Paul's instruction here is emphatic. We ask, that's nice, but we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. And whatever he'll say next, he's obviously not messing around. He's not just giving instructions. These are not optional principles. He's urging them. This is urgent. This is of utmost importance. Because it comes from God, not just Paul. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is like what he said in chapter 2, verse 13. That when we are with you, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul has taught them, not just the gospel, but the implications of the gospel. And he teaches them here again in this letter what he's already taught them before. Verse 1, as you receive from us how to walk and how to please God. Or verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you. And then he's giving them again. They not only had heard it before, they were already doing it somewhat. Just as you are doing. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate to reiterate, to remind, to apply afresh. Here's how you please God. They need to hear it again. We need to hear it again. We need to hear it again because many of us really don't understand this biblical idea of pleasing God. Much less pleasing him more and more? Can we really please God? And in fairness, the answer to that is both no and yes. So on the no side of things, there's Romans 8.8. 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. That's putting the cart before the horse. And there is no pleasure in God when we do that. 
But in Christ, with the horse in the driver's seat leading the way, well, the cart desires to please God. And we can. So Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. Or Ephesians 5, verse 10, discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Colossians 1.10, Paul prayed for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And conversely, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30. So what's it going to be? Are we going to grieve God or are we going to please God? It might help us to please him if we ponder that he's pleased a little more than we do. Let's just noodle on that for a little bit. God is pleased by what we do. He didn't have to arrange things like that. It's not like he just said, well, I can't help it. You know, my heart was just pulled to be pleased when you did that for me. No, God, God's emotions are not like ours. They they're chosen emotions, and he's chosen to be pleased by what we do. And that implies relationship, doesn't it? This is personal. It's intimate. He cares. He's the Father. Three times thus far, Paul has referred to God as our Father. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he told them that they were loved by God. That's why he's pleased by what we do when we go his way, when we look like him. He wants what's best for us. What he has not said to do, what he said not to do, is not what's best for us. And so he's pleased when we do what is best for us, as he said. What we do matters. That is massively significant. What we do, God cares about. He cares. And so we not only can please God, we must please God. We urge you, Paul says, to walk in this way that pleases God and to do it more and more. Just as you are doing. He does commend them thus far, and yet he's zealous for them to do more. He doesn't say, just as you're doing, good job, period, end of paragraph. He's got more for them. He wants more for them. He, he wanted more for himself. And so he said in Philippians 3, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, Paul goes on to say, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He describes his own Christian life as straining forward, not having attained it. Straining forward like a, 
like a sprinter will lean into the tape at the end of a race. Paul likens the Christian life to a race. He likens it here to a walk. How you ought to walk. A walk isn't as fast as a sprint race, but a walk like a race implies progress. Plotting. One foot after another. Moving forward. The Christian life, we're told, is like farming. It's to grow. It's like gardening. We're to bear fruit. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is how Peter ends his second letter. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. You can think of what the opposite of growth is. What, what is it? Well, it's, it's to shrink. It's to pull back. It's to, it's to coast. It's to be stagnant. And we're not to be that way. Now, let's be realistic. We know that our growth is not this straight line on a graph. It's not a smooth trajectory. It's a bit like the stock market. There's some major ups and some major downs, but hopefully on the whole, it's even bigger today than it was when it started. That's our Christian life. We want to keep growing in it, never content, always more that can be shaped into the image of Christ. And that won't stop until either we die or Jesus returns. So pursue it more and more. That pursuit pleases God. That we can and must please God. Secondly, how we can please God, particularly as it pertains to our bodies. In verse 3, Paul begins this section by speaking of the will of God. Notice here the will of God is not some sort of mysterious secret plan for our lives where if we discover it and we get the combination of decisions and circumstances right, everything falls into place and we achieve our best life now. That's not the will of God here. It's simply what God has commanded, what Paul has relayed, as he described it in verses 1 and 2, or as he puts it in what follows this word, sanctification. Sanctification, a big word, it just means to be set apart or to be made holy. And sometimes in the Bible, that word is used in what we might call a positional sense, positional sanctification. And when the Bible speaks of that kind of sanctification, it is a gift from God received all at once based on Christ's perfect holiness. So 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 speaks of Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us. We're holy before God. We have that position because of Christ but sometimes in the Bible, this word sanctification is used in a progressive sense. Not positional, but progressive. It's personal. It's what we do. It's what 
effort we put into this. It's things we've decided. It's not perfect, but, but it's genuine and real. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, is speaking of sanctification in that latter sense. Progressive sanctification. This kind of sanctification involves everything that God wants of us. Everything that the Bible teaches us. It's the whole Christian life. It's not just one thing. It's not just one marker. It it can't be assessed by one simple test. And that's important because some of us think that way. Some of us think that our growth, our progress, our sanctification can be marked by consistency with daily devotions. You know, devotions, the, the daily Bible reading and prayer of a Christian. And so you might think either you're doing really bad in sanctification right now because you haven't read your Bible in five days, or that you're doing really good in your Christian life right now because... Well, this week so far, you're batting a thousand. Keep in mind, it's only Sunday. Well, it, there's certainly a time and place to, to, to talk about how Bible and prayer are essential for our Christian growth. But Paul doesn't talk about that here. He talks about, instead, sexual purity. And when he talks about sexual purity here, he's not bringing this up because it is the one thing. And so if you don't look, if you don't touch, if you didn't cross this line, proof that you're growing in Christ. Maybe, maybe not. And yet it's not an unimportant topic. It would be especially important for these Greco-Roman Thessalonians, now Christians, For them to be reminded, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now let me just say a pastoral word about how I'm going to approach talking about this this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4 is direct and clear and specific, and so I need to do that as well. But we won't go into details that are more specific or more graphic than our passage does. So don't grab your kids and run out just yet. But parents of younger kids, you may get some questions from your kids today that you'll have to decide on your own how to answer or if to answer. I don't know about you, but Sarah and I, we had the approach that not everything our kids asked us were they ready to hear? And we would just tell them that. We'd say, ah, it's too big for you right now. We'll tell you later. It's a good question. You'll ask it again sometime in the future, and we'll probably talk about it then. And so you decide whether you can fill in gaps with your kids or not, but just know you're going to hear the word sex more than once this morning, and we're doing so because God's word addresses it and because we need it. Like our own day, the Greco-Roman culture of first century Thessalonica was a very sexualized one. Believe it or not, even more so than our culture today. For them, monogamy was not at all the norm. Not even the norm for the, the good people, you might say. 
No, sex outside of marriage for them was, in fact, the norm, especially for men. It was expected. And the biblical worldview of sex reserved for a man and a woman strictly within marriage, that would have been crazy to Romans in the first century. And yet these Thessalonians turned to Christ that day as we find in Acts 17, or as Paul describes at the end of chapter 1 of this letter, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In turning to God, they necessarily turned from some of their former ways, not least in their understanding of, their approach to, and their activities related to sex, and really all things sexual. That's why Paul uses a term here that's quite broad. The ESV translates it sexual immorality, but the Greek word pornea, yes, it is where we get our English word pornography, but it's not limited to that, nor is it limited to adultery. It's not just the consummate act of sex. It is all that is sexual and sensual outside of marriage. That's what Paul's talking about here. Things sexual done alone. Things sexual done with someone who isn't your spouse. Paul gives a helpful paradigm in 1 Timothy 5 When he's telling Timothy about how to relate to different categories of people in the church, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And treat the younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Why did he add that phrase at the end, in all purity? Because he knows. He knows how this works. He knows what Timothy needed to hear. He knows what Timothy would need to share. When that cute, unmarried, dating, teenage couple comes up to Pastor Timothy and asks him, so how far is too far? How how far can we go and not sin? Timothy would say, well, here's what Paul wrote me. Treat her like your sister. What would you do with your sister? That's maybe one way to gauge it. Everything else, until marriage, abstain from it. Pertaining to all that is sexual and sensual outside of marriage, abstain from it. That's the negative statement. Then verse 4, it's put positively. Each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, what we do with our bodies isn't the only thing that matters. It's not that physicality is the only thing to consider. It's not that the battle for sexual purity is waged only on the level of what is physical. But bodies do matter. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
Or 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So flee from sexual immorality. Flee from all that is sexual and sensual outside of marriage. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see there at the end of the passage I read in 1 Corinthians 6, it's cart and horse. You've been bought with a price. That's the gospel. There's the horse. But there is a cart. Glorify God in your body. Yes, your body. Not just your mind. Not just your affections. In your body. There's a way to conduct our bodies in holiness and honor. Or in ungodliness and dishonor. And for those married here, you should know that there is, there is honor and holiness and freedom within marriage. And for those unmarried here, you should know that there is a kind of way to conduct your body in holiness and honor, pleasing to God, even apart from marriage. That might be hard for you to hear. And the only bit of comfort and encouragement I can give you in your singleness today is to remind you that the most fully filled out person who's ever walked this earth, Jesus, was never married. He never had sex. The most fulfilled person who's ever walked this earth remained single his whole life, never had sex, and he was fulfilled. He was fully human. So be encouraged by that. But whether you find yourself in a context of marriage or you find yourself single, it requires control. Control of our bodies. Like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife came on to him in a secluded place, what did he do? He fled. He controlled his body. He left. Sometimes that's as best as we can do. Sometimes that's the only thing we resort to. But we should know how to control our bodies. You see those words, know how. Know, strategize. Know where your, your hot spots are, your temptations. Know what you can't handle. And grow in knowing this. Grow in knowing how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Because, back to point one, it pleases God. It's how you ought to walk. It's no small part of your sanctification. This is the will of God for you. It's not to frustrate you. God's plan is not to reduce your pleasures and joys and fulfillment. So what's not said in our passage but is surely assumed is the beauty and intimacy of the marital bed. Our culture today, like the Greco-Roman world of the first century, 
For, for those people, sex is it's about self-gratification. It's individualized even with a partner. It's merely physical. And that is so far from the worldview of the Bible. That's not God's gift to us in sex, in marriage. It's so much more than physical. It's so much more than about me. It's so much more than just self-gratification. So, so this passage is not reducing your pleasures, but it's God guiding you away from what appears to be green pastures, but really are just thistle, thorn-filled fields. And what's also in the background of our passage is everything that came before it in chapters 1 to 3. The gospel, their conversion, their calling, their election, God's love, their adoption, all that is assumed. It's on the basis of all that that Paul urges these people to abstain from sexual immorality. It's based on what he has already done for them in Christ. It's based on what they already are in Christ. It's based on all that God has promised for them in Christ. Now, in light of that, he wants a good path for you. He delights when you go his way. And yet here is also hope for the Christian who has failed. The gospel. The gospel is not just where we begin, but we just keep coming back to it, right? Every time we realize our guilt, we find hope in the gospel afresh. We put our hope explicitly in that gospel afresh. We look to the cross once again, remembering what we've believed all along. His grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than the whole collection of sexual sins that I've committed. And I'm sure it's a catalog much bigger than I know. God's grace is greater than what you did last week. And so the, the gospel welcome, the invitation to come and to come freely to receive this grace that's outside of you and outside your doing is laid out before you again today. And it will be tomorrow. And so, yes, turn from your sin, but turn to Christ afresh. Find hope in the gospel. Let that horse pull your cart into days of more purity. And if you're not yet a Christian, well, there's a horse and there's a cart and you shouldn't hear from 1 Thessalonians 4 that if you stop doing certain things with your body, then God will love you. That this new path of purity will somehow cleanse out, disqualify and dismiss all that you've done before. It won't. It doesn't work that way. No, you need grace. You need forgiveness. You need to come humbly to the Lord Acknowledge that you are in trouble. Believe, though, that Jesus dying on the cross for sins and being raised in the third day was enough and enough for you and enough for your trouble. It's good news. Believe it today. And then get on with us in this path of walking 
the way that the Bible charts out for us. Let me tell you why. So so thirdly here, we see why we must please God. Verses 5 to 8. And really several reasons are given by Paul. Some are implicit, some are explicit. You see, in verse 5, we should live not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That was these people before Paul came to town with the gospel and they put their lot with him in this gospel. But now they know God. Now if there's no God, then doing what you want seems about as wise as anything else out there. If there is no God, then what's the big deal about these parts getting in contact with these parts At that point, it's just a a matter of biology. It's just a matter of physics. And it's empty. It's empty. For human beings to treat sex like animals do. That's not how we were made. There is a God. We can know him. He has spoken. We can know what he says. It's written down for us in this book. He describes for us in great detail what he wants for us and what he doesn't want from us. And so you're no longer like the Gentiles who do not know God, so don't live like you're that. See, the other reason in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. He's still talking about sex in this matter. But what does he mean? Well, it might help to know that brother here need not be gender specific. He's been calling these Thessalonian Christians brothers all the way through the letter. And surely he doesn't mean to address the male Christians in the church only. No, he means brothers and sisters, and I think he does here as well. He says there's a way in which we might transgress or defraud or wrong a brother in this matter of sexual immorality. How? Well, think of adultery. Adultery. In adultery... One defrauds and wrongs the other person's spouse and their own spouse as well. With sexual activity before marriage, that wrongs that other person's future spouse, which may not be you. It it wrongs their parents. Sexual activity defrauds and wrongs the one with whom we are doing these things. Even when it's consensual. We're still, outside of marriage, we're taking what is not yet ours. It may be yours, in a sense, two months from now, two weeks from now, but it's not yours. Outside of marriage, it's not yours And it's wrong to take what is not ours. You see in verse 6, the second half, there's this motivation. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
Now, this doesn't mean that salvation gets negated whenever we fail sexually. No, this is talking about those who totally blow off this teaching. And we saw this last week. Not everyone who professes Christ perseveres in Christ. And so this is talking about those who so blow off this teaching, so disregard God, as he says in verse 8, that they prove they never really have been saved in the first place. And for them, the Lord is an avenger. That is scary. And it's also a comfort to those who have been sexually violated. The Lord is an avenger. You see in verse 7, another reason. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Think of your call unto salvation. He called you in Christ's righteousness. So, now in sanctification, he has called you to live that out. Knowing that you won't do it perfectly, your salvation doesn't ride in your performance, but he's called you unto this. This is the very nature, the very reason for your calling is purity on, uh, in your standing before God because of Christ, yes, but also in your living. And that more and more. And then there's this final reason there in the end of verse 8. God gives his Holy Spirit to you. See how he stacked up the reasons for us to desire to please God in our bodies, to control our bodies, to abstain from what is sexually aberrant in his plan? Well, he's given his Holy Spirit to you. One-third of the Godhead resides within every Christian. We read it from 1 Corinthians 6, and here it is as well. He's given his Holy Spirit to you, which tells you how important you are. And it also encourages you in the battle, the fight. You have God within you. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. He convicts of sin leads us out of temptation, reminds us, leads us in righteousness. It is his fruit that we are to bear, according to Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. We have the Spirit within us. And so if this description of God's plan for sexuality seems daunting, if not impossible, to you, do not doubt it. He has given the Holy Spirit to you. Yes, it'll take, it'll take some considering how. It'll take some self-control. It will take moments to just say no. It'll take you ruminating about what he's done and what's come before and how he's pleased when you obey. And when all that clicks and we say no, when we go his way, we can give credit to God for the Holy Spirit within us who has granted us that ability. Charles Spurgeon gives, gives us a helpful illustration related to this sort of horse and cart thing. Uh, he imagines a blind man who asks Jesus for healing 
and is willing to pay for the healing. He offers Jesus money to heal him. And Spurgeon asks, would Jesus take the money? He says, of course not. Jesus will heal this man fully and freely. But once he is healed, he is no longer blind. And he can no longer do what blind men do, but beg. He must get up. He must get to work. He must now live like a man with sight. Jesus healed him freely, and he is no longer blind, but sees. And he gets up, and he gets to work. Or here's how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in its very first question. I love this. I'll end with this. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Let me pause and have you think about what the answer might be for you. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the great Heidelberg answer is like this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we confess again this morning, this is our only comfort in life and in death. Not our own good, not our own doing, but what you've done for us and even what you're doing in us. What you're doing to us. Oh Lord, we're thankful for forgiveness and we are also thankful for transformation. We simply ask for more of it, Lord. Whatever is there, we thank you for it. We pray for more and more. For your glory, Lord. For our good. Until that day when we are with you and sin is no more, temptation is no more, there is no longer this cycle of failure and faith and confidence in you, but just confidence in you and worship and victory to your glory. May it be so, Lord. Until that day, Lord, keep us and keep us close to you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.